As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. There's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James and welcome to Dev Diary. The series explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Sanatan Mishra, current designer at Witchbeam. So join us as we explore his journey. So today I'm joined by Sanat and how are you? I'm great, thank you. That's awesome to hear. It's 2021. It's our first Dev Diary episode of the year. So thank you very much for coming aboard for this one. We've been discussing it for a little while and it's good to get it going. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm uh, always happy to chat about the state of my life, the world and everything. Yeah, uh, and there's some really fascinating things to discuss, which we'll get to shortly. But this is Dev Diary, a series where we talk to developers from throughout the industry. They share their stories, their experiences, and basically the journey that's led to this current point. But before we get to your time in the career, I'd love to pick your brain about some of your first gaming experiences. Some of the some of the first games you played. Do you even recall the first game that you played? You know, I was pretty young, so it's hard to remember the exact game. But the one that stands out strongest to me from that that whole period of when I was, what do I mean, like four or five, five years old, I think, was uh, Super Mario Brothers on Nintendo Entertainment System. But it wasn't oh, nice. mine. It was uh, across the street, my neighbor. Uh, he had what I would later learn is a fairly standard thing that happens where his parents got divorced and then they bought his love oh, with lovely gifts. Right. The kind that yes. I could never have afforded. Yes, I know. I've heard of that sort of story. That's uh, yeah, I, I know a couple of friends, unfortunately, that, that were in that boat, but certainly benefited in the gaming department as well. So He did, he did. Also, he had the, uh, all the things. You're not the first person to ever have, uh, in fact, the majority of people have said to me, oh, I played it at a friend's place, so where's Case Zero? Where, where's the first person that ever bought this game console and it's just kind of gradually proliferated from there? Because it, it, it's always, I played at someone else's place, I played at someone else's place, and that's that's when it got introduced, and then I brought it into my own home. I'd love yeah. to make this, this Case Zero for this. It's such a bizarre thing that I've heard that same story a lot as well. I think it's because the the nest was so expensive here in Australia. Yeah, that, true. Uh, very few people had it, and so if you had it, your friends would all want to play it at your place. Yeah, no, very very true. And eventually, once that price came down, it became a bit more uh, feasible for people. But uh, so Super Mario Brothers was your was your first, and uh, how did you take to that? What what did you make of it at first? Do you recall kind of the first impression? Yeah. No, I, th- I mean, the first impression that I got was just the fascination at, like, the possibilities that it had. You know, it, it was a presentation and a level of, I guess, the visuals were at a level where I didn't understand what would be possible. You know, when you see something that defies your expectations, you start to wonder, well, what else could it do? What else could it be? And yes. it just kind of sparked a lot of, um, I guess, creative interest in me. And then, you know, obviously you play it and... It just controls so well. Even today, you play the original Super Mario Brothers, it, it just feels fantastic. Oh, it so holds we would up. Sit, yeah, it holds up very well. We would sit there and we would play it. Um, you know, it's not as great as, like, Super Meat Boy or something that was made many, many years later in terms of the, the smoothness of the controls, but it's still just spectacular. Well, I mean, brilliant given the constraints that were basically placed upon it by the, by the Nintendo itself. So Yeah, I mean, this um, thing was probably made under the most ridiculous conditions in a, a very short period of time. And it, it's still, so the fact that it holds up, what is it? 35 something years later. is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a real feat and they really refined it and 
even bettered it over the over the coming years. So, uh, were there any other franchises that you latched onto as you were growing up? I assume uh, once you'd gotten the taste, it wasn't all that long before you found yourself in the possession of a an NES or maybe a future console. Well, no, we we didn't actually get to buy anything ourselves for quite some time because my um my family was not really poverty stricken in that sense, but definitely uh not not quite at the middle class level where you'd comfortably get a a console. The first thing that we actually owned yeah. was a um a Commodore sixty four that my mum found at a garage sale for like fifty bucks with you know three hundred games or something. That's a good um, start though. It was a great start. There's a ton of different things. We would just sit there all day, you know, loading the uh, the tapes, which would take approximately 10,000 years, um, and try out all the different games. And, you know, obviously stuff like uh, The Last Ninja is just so ingrained in my head. It, all that music, the way that it feels, the sensation of exploring and trying to master the, the movement systems. Um, and then, yeah, playing things on... Um, my neighbor would continue to get different games and we, and we would play everything. I... I really love games like Faxanadu. Um, anything oh, yeah. that had like an adventurous tone to it really connected with me. Yeah, I mean, Faxanadu is one of those that gets raised every now and then in the exact same sort of context. It's a, it's a nice touchstone for a lot of people. Yeah, fantastic game. My brother actually recently did a full-on uh, remix of the main theme for that game. He's been toying around making a lot of music and he decided that was the thing that, that interested him was to go through and try and do a spooky style remix for that. So it's been something that's still on my mind all these years later, actually. Uh, entertaining the idea of doing something funny with that game as well? or I'd love to, to do something with Faxanadu, but I think Faxanadu is actually a precursor to experiences like Dark Souls in a lot of ways. Um, you know, people say that everything is the, the, the something. or The know, Dark Souls of this or the... Yeah, the Dark Souls of this, the Dark Souls of that. And it, definitely Dark Souls is the faxanity of, of the 3D video game in a lot of ways. That <laughs> game was ruthless. Yes, that that is probably my only memory of that game is that it broke me very early on and I don't think I came back to it um, ever or at least for quite some time. Uh, but I appreciated what it was. It just clearly wasn't for me, at least at that point in my life anyway. Yeah, um, were there any other franchises you. that, I guess, as your access to games started to grow, so be, beyond even your Commodore 64 days, were there any franchises or genres that you uh, attached yourself to in any way that you really yeah. felt so, for? Yeah, so probably around the time when I started to develop like a real strong attachment to a property would be um, when we got our first console, which my, my oldest brother, who's a lot older than me, uh, he bought a Mega Drive for us when they yep. got cheap enough and we played pretty much everything that Sega would make on that and Sonic the Hedgehog obviously I recently uh, made the controversial comment that in the 16-bit hmm. era was better than uh, anything that, that uh, Mario did and I stand by that that game Sonic the Hedgehog 1 and 2 are just like perfect video games I love them I'm obsessed with everything Sega did from the Mega Drive through to the end of the Dreamcast era, even the early you know Xbox GameCube stuff they were doing with Jet Set Radio Future and the various games they did, their Panzer Dragoon Order. I, I feel like that was, for me, that's the style of video games that I connect with the most. Look, I can't possibly agree with you in the in the Sega versus Nintendo comparison, but that's, that's <laughs> in essence why it's a controversial controversial comment, and you're not alone. I know there's other crazy people like you that will go uh, that will tip Sega's, Sega's side, but uh, I can appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, th those are just games that connected <laughs> with me and they stuck with me forever, basically. 
Yeah, and I mean, that's, now, the, that's the great thing. It's all subjective anyway, so you so throw much my of, opinion in the bin. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. Anybody can like anything they want, really. Yeah. Um, but even now, my design sensibilities are so shaped by the style and approach that Sega had, the the bright blue skies, the vibrant, lush colors, um, the way that they would focus on trying to make you like feel really good in the moment in a way that uh, even Nintendo don't necessarily approach now. Like Mario is very precise and it's very interesting and allows for a lot of possibility space, especially the, the 3D Marios that are just spectacular oh, and yeah. how much they approach that. But like Sega's always been about making you feel really, really good in the moment. And I think that's why... Like, the best F-Zero game was actually made by Sega because, like, that, to me, is what those kind of games need to feel like. Um, and it's just the difference in how they, they would approach games. I don't know if Sega still do that because, you know, things have changed and companies are just people, after all, and when the people yeah, change, the company and... changes. Yeah. But to the Sega of that era, that that's something special to me, the way that their games would feel completely unique. I guess it's, it's really fascinating to me that uh, Sega was something you attach yourself to early on and... Uh, the opportunity kind of came full circle there when you found your way to them uh, in the future in your actual development career. So I look forward to picking your brain when it comes to that shortly. Was there a game at all that you really identify as being a key moment that told you, hey, I, I want to get into the actual creation or development of games or was it just purely a culmination of experiences or even something you just stumbled into? It's kind of a weird thing in that I wanted to make games from when I was very, very young. Not necessarily video games, but just create something. Um, yeah. Again, my oldest brother who got me the the Mega Drive, um, and, you know, he's over a decade older than me. He would teach me how to play like Dungeons and Dragons type experiences. He got really into that um, in the early days of that kind of stuff before it, it is the massive behemoth that it is now, looking like the early nineties. Yeah. Um, and because we didn't have consoles of our own at the time this is before we bought that and we didn't actually have like a ton of action figures or other things that um that some kids and our friends had he would uh get like plasticine and femo and toothpicks and rubber bands and stuff and he would teach us how to like make your own characters and then take a sheet of paper and a pencil and you could write like a story for those characters and invent a world for those characters and like we turned our bedrooms with various sheets and blankets and pillows and things we would create landscapes that then we'd define all right like this blanket is a mountain it's this got this kind of terrain it moves at half space and you roll a dice to move these little characters that you create around and basically tried to figure out like that you could create your own entertainment your own worlds in your head and then when i figured out that you could do the same thing with computer games and the possibilities were so much more endless than pretending that your sheet was the ocean because it was blue. Like, that just blew my mind, and I knew that I wanted to do that. Unfortunately, I had a bunch of assumptions about that and uh, various other things in my life transpired where I didn't really have the opportunity to exercise that desire until much, much later in my life. I thought that, for, first of all, that you needed a ton of extremely specialized skills that I would never be able to master. Um, you know, having a... I never went to, to university, for example. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't until much later in my life that I actually found an opportunity to, to even try games, even though people, friends of mine who are game developers were always telling me, oh, you just, you just got to do it, you just got to try it. I just never really believed that that was realistic. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a myriad of dis- different possibilities these days, but the barrier to entry can seem huge at first. You, yours is not the you're not the first person I've spoken to there with, who said a similar sort of thing where they just didn't think it would be possible or, or um, you know, Australia isn't a, a place where we make games. That's Japan and America. And exactly. you know, when some of these misconceptions get broken down, all of a sudden there's a massive perspective shift and maybe there's a possibility there. But at first it does seem almost impossible. But I do love the uh, the, the forts and the, the worlds that you're designing out of the, out of the furniture. Um it's just childhood beauty. I, we spoke before the recording. I've got I've got a son that's nearly two and a half now, and you can just see he, he's not at that point. He's still a bit too young for that. But you can see like I'll oh, get this and I'll do this and with his train set or whatever it happens to be, and he just he changes things up in little ways that I think once you become an adult, I'm not I suppose I don't want to be too general, but for the most part, once once you start to grow a bit older, you don't necessarily think or explore necessarily in the same way there's that childhood innocence where you just make things happen that's um just so creative yeah there's a bit of a bit like peter pan right where you've got this whole idea that when you get older you start to see all of the limitations and assume that they have to exist uh and that that's the correct way to to look at things and when you're a kid you just assume that Anything's possible. Anything is, anything is possible, so you might as well just do whatever the heck you want. Yeah, I, I just kind of watch on fascinated by him sometimes. I can't wait until he's a little bit older and can even explain a little bit of what he's doing to me, uh, doing from time, uh, time to time because it's really astounding to watch. But, uh, yeah, and that kind of led to me the equivalent where I was making little Zelda dungeons on paper, but that was about the, the extent of my kind of creative design sort of approaches when I was younger, so... You're far more elaborate, uh, far more impressive. Oh, these these things, you know, you just got to do whatever you can, I I think. Make ends meet. Everybody's just creating things in the style that that they feel most comfortable with. For some reason, there was always um, a giant slide in mine. I don't know why. Not really a Zelda thing at all, but there was always a slide that would take you from one one end of the dungeon to the other. Who knows? (laughs) Maybe that's a, a neat idea. If you were to make another 2D style Zelda, you'd have a wrapping world, right? Yeah, trapped oh. trapped inside a dreamscape, inside a, a dream world that has no beginning and no end, and so the entire experience is uh, wrapped physically the same way that, say, uh, Majora's Mask was wrapped in time. Ooh, I like that. I'll give Miyamoto a ring and see if he's keen. Yeah, why not? Um, so the the journey to the career itself, as as you mentioned, you didn't necessarily see those possibilities, and um, so your your path went elsewhere for a little while. What did you engage yourself in? What was what were some of those uh, first, I guess, working opportunities before you found your way to games? Uh, very briefly, I was working with my brother um, at a company that, that he had co-founded with uh, a friend of... Uh, well, not a friend of his, his former boss. So he, he had his first job um, working at a computer repair shop, basically, but then got really interested in uh, VFX, computer, uh, computer effects in general, uh, editing, compositing, that kind of thing. And his boss actually decided to open up a company that would specialize in providing support for that in the Australian community. So, you know, companies like Animal Logic would buy their software from them and get yep. tech support uh, from them. Um, and so I was briefly working with him for a little while, learning the tricks of that trade and gaining an appreciation for high-end broadcast monitors that I still love to this day, CRT <laughs> for life. Um, and doing, doing things related to that, learning, learning the basics of VFX... Uh, editing, compositing, 
all the stuff that's adjacent to games, but not really in the same space. Yeah, I was going to say, it's just slightly adjacent. You were very, very close without actually being in that space yourself. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I was never... I'm, I'm a terrible artist, I'll be honest with you, but the technical side of these programs and these problems, that definitely something that interested me, and I learned a lot about, I guess, the, the underpinning stuff that uh, these systems have, which does apply to games in some ways. Oh, for sure. There, there'll definitely be some commonalities and then a lot of differences in other ways. Yeah, so and I, le that... I leveraged some of those skills during the, the first transition when I was in with games as well, which is interesting. Yeah, so how did that transition occur? How did you get your first opportunity? We, you know, it's it's well documented. Uh, Sega was that uh, kickoff yeah. point, but uh, how did that emerge? So weirdly enough, in two thousand seven, um, I had been playing a lot of competitive strategy games over the previous years. Yeah, uh, competed in Warcraft three. Ended up representing Australia internationally at one point, which was pretty cool. That um, is cool. Yeah, very, very deep understanding of that game, which I still play to this day. I love that game. Oh, it holds and up. Definitely one of those that really holds up. In 2007, I ended up playing a game called World in Conflict, which I still think is one of the most underrated strategy games ever made. So there's genius to that game. I could rant and rave. I could write a 30-page novel about how fantastic the, uh, the elements of that game that were never seen again were. But alas, the I guess like the setting and style of it just didn't catch at the time, and I can understand why it was a very interesting militaristic kind of presentation. Um, the developers of that went on to make the uh, the division, by the way, that was there. Oh yeah, okay, uh, massive. Yeah, math, fantastic developers. And I played a bunch of that, and it turned out that uh, Creative Assembly, who was based out of Brisbane, who'd been co-developing the Total War series with uh, Creative Assembly in the UK, as you know, the UK is the main office. Yes. They were working on a new strategy game that they were hoping to bring to PC and console. Uh, and they Storm reached Rise? out to... That'd be that Storm is Stormrise. Yes. Yeah. It turned out to be sadly a terrible game, but I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> uh, they reached out to the local competitive player community through uh, one of their producers. Um, and they basically found me and my team, who were the best team in the Australia for World in Conflict. And a couple of us lived in Queensland, and even though the timing didn't really work out for the whole team to come in and do a, a playtesting session, which is what they ideally wanted, um, I offered to come in on my own and wrote up like a, an email, and it turned out my brother actually knew the head of the studio because they bought software from him at different points. Uh, That's which, a luxury. Which had worked out, yeah. But uh, no, the, the only reason it happened was that they were reaching out to the competitive players, and so I ended up coming in and playing the game for a while and I was giving some feedback and the, the creative director was hanging around and he actually came and had a chat with me because I guess they were, you know, taking feedback from competitive players seriously at the time to see what people who are really experienced thought of their approach to strategy gaming. And I just chatted with him for like, must have been three hours. It felt like forever. It was an entire afternoon and it wasn't meant to be this, I don't think. Um, and at the end of it, you know, I was I was so keen on discussing things with him and I thought, Maybe I do have an aptitude for this. This is kind of interesting. And uh, yeah, you, you don't know, find he... yourself talking to a, a leader of the studio for three plus hours with them yeah. picking your brain constantly. Yeah, and this was a different you've guy. Got no to... idea what you're doing. This was a different guy to the guy that my um, my brother knew as well. So this oh, was yeah, like okay. a, a good connection. So the, my brother knew the the studio manager, but this was the, the creative director. And I just ended up asking him at the end. I was like, "Well, this is really interesting. I'd I'd love to be part of this project in some way. You know, be it playtesting more or whatever." And he said they've, they've got openings popping up all the time because they're looking to ramp up as it was going into production soon. And um, 
obviously without any specialized skill set there was not really any logical place for me to start but uh qa but he said my opinion would still be relevant just as anyone at the company and and i'd learn a lot about game development so i ended up applying uh, and i got the job um it wasn't really much of an application though i, I get the feeling that it was kind of like you know got through because you're a known commodity at that got point through because i had had this discussion with him and he was like well i want this person to be part of the project in some way and so i felt really blessed and lucky to have that connection and also that our conversation had gone so well um i don't know maybe i had some minimal amount of natural aptitude for the, the gig well, and I mean, yeah. there's, there's always that uh, saying that, you know, it's who you know, not what you know. But uh, in this case, it seems like it's a bit of a combination of both. You had that uh, relationship advantage, but you'd also establish that because of the, the the deep knowledge that you had that was clearly underpinning that three plus hour conversation. Yeah. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that like they were an RTS centric studio and I had spent the last several years basically obsessing over strategy games uh, in a you know, every sense of the word, playing them competitively, just making custom maps and trying to understand their design and ethos. And I still stand by that one of the most interesting things you can do as a designer is play a game to the level that you're basically breaking it. Um, because if you've never done that in any type of game, it's really hard for you to look at your own work or your own plans and understand what it's going to be like for players who do want to play the game for that long. And that that's who you should not necessarily be designing for first and foremost, but you got to make sure that your game has something there for the person who wants to be playing it after a hundred hours. Uh, it has yeah, to be accessible. Sense. It has to have something for everyone, but it does have to have a core that still works after that amount of effort. So you then obviously spoke about Stormrise itself and how it wasn't such a great game in the end. What yeah, went wrong actually, in that's your the project. Eyes? I crunched the hardest on that project out of everything I made. Even even Cactus, which wasn't really crunch so much as just like there was just so much to do and, and kind of learn and different things. But Stormrise was was an epic undertaking. They were trying to make a full-on console RTS having come off of only making PC stuff on a known engine, building their own stuff, their own tech, brand new control systems, multiple platforms simultaneously. It was It was a real effort. And still a lot uh, of uh, scepticism and cynicism about RTS t uh, titles or style titles on console as well. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody thought that it would be impossible to do, and yet the areas in which it failed were probably, to me, the areas that um, had least to do with what was <laughs> what it was trying to do ambitiously on a console. I actually liked the control scheme. It had a whip system where you would flick the right analog stick and basically... Um, repositioned dynamically across units around the entire yeah. map, which you could then group up into small groups or issue commands to in a 3D uh, view, view space. Yeah, un unfortunately, the areas where it did fall short, um, we really, really failed to get the game running to a point where we could internally play and polish and test it before we had to make all the content for it. Uh, and everything was built and rushed and hacked together in the last three to six months of development. And that's where you can feel it in the game where the campaign is inconsistent. You've got levels that are indoors that are trying to play one way and levels that are outdoors on huge maps that are trying to play another way. And, and the mechanics the mechanics are not suited for one or the other. They're, they're like, it's, it's not designed to be an everything game. It, it, it uh, definitely was a problem of 
not everybody was working on the same page and even if they were there just wasn't enough time for it to to work out the way that it needed to no, that's a bit of a shame but yeah. it was your first foot in the door so i'd imagine it would have still been quite the thrill regardless i was i was uh, elated to be on that project and learning everything i moved out of qa after about 3 or 4 months they pushed me over into design and production i was helping out um a lovely fellow named Jeff Van Dyke, who does he did yes. all the music for the first several Total War games, uh, as well as for some rad classics like the first two Need for Speed games and Skitchen. Total legend, total champion. Recently won a bunch of awards for being the audio director on Alien Isolation and also does all the music for Witchbeam's games and all the sound yeah. effects. Yeah, he does a great job as someone who <laughs> I'm actually at some point keen to, to get on board for the show. So uh, I've, I've been following Jeff for a little while and yeah, quite aware of some of the really awesome stuff that he's done so yeah great to work alongside him from such an early point in your career just a fantastic guy as well really genuine human being who cares so much about the quality of the work that he's doing and the well-being of the people he's working with which um, is really lovely and for the most part early on when i switched out of qa i was supporting him uh i leaned back on some of the skills that i'd learned in the the video editing process uh where they asked me to handle all of the video comms in the game so i was putting those together um, with animations out of Max and Meyer and editing them, and there was no budget for it. And by no budget, I mean I was literally using open source free um, pieces of software. Oh, wow. And it, I ended up doing all of the compositing and editing basically in uh, a thing called AviSynth. I don't know if you know AviSynth, and then Virtual Not Dub, and then ex- exporting that over into Bink video format. But AviSynth is a scripting-based compositing system. So you can okay. write a script. I had to learn to script to use this thing. I'd never done real scripting before. But uh, you could basically get these these little additional plug-in scripts that would edit the image in different ways and then script them on and off at time codes and load in uh, files on top of each other to composite them together. And so I would get the artist to make me like a little fuzzy hazy smoke effect and then use my scripting thing to run a batch file to edit all of the video comms for the sci side and have them basically you know appear out of what would look like smoky air where it would the alpha effect would just do that or uh, add scan lines and rippling effects to the the human ones because even though it's future technology people expect video comms to be dodgy instead of crisp iphone-esque looking stuff yeah actually that's a that's a good point i've never why have I not questioned uh, film or games or television on that in the past? Yeah, I don't know, because <laughs> actually all of our cameras are getting better and better, and these days even a $300 phone probably has enough to run HD 120 frames per second HDR footage, right? Yeah, and yet so, everything in these futuristic settings is still... Oh, jeez, you'd think it'd come from the 80s, 70s or 80s. Exactly right, but that's what we've come to expect of our video comm systems based on historical precedent. So yeah, I made all of that stuff and set it up and it went out so well. Me and Jeff had a really great working relationship after that because he asked me to do some some Herculean things. And at the time, I was kind of just new to game development and figured, well, I'll figure out how to make this happen. Uh, i got to be honest with you, these days, if someone asked me to do that, I would have said, give me $10,000 to buy some software, please. Because <laughs> that was just nonsense to be doing that in a scripting-based open source system. But anyway... When you're inexperienced and you're you're looking for any way to establish yourself, you you do some crazy things sometimes. You definitely do. And, and did you did eyes. you have any idea how much work that was going to entail, or was it really? Oh, it was meant to be a lot smaller of a job. It was meant to be a lot smaller. 
It was yeah, never yeah. meant to be as complex or have all these effects, but I wanted it to be better than the min-spec. The min-spec was just show it on the screen, have, I think there was planned to be you know, something like 30 video comms and there ended up being several hundred um, because I did a, a bandwidth check on the size of the image on the screen at a 720p resolution uh, with the best possible tweaking of the compression software inside Bink Video. And I was like, all right, Jeff, instead of doing audio comms and video comms, I think I can make it work to do entirely video comms for all of the in-mission communication across the entire game. And so we just did that. Oh, yeah. Sounds right. But that's how game development often is. You often have, like, you know... Constantly this evolving. The min-spec, and then everything you can do beyond that. Yeah. And even though I'd imagine that... that beyond that point that we're talking about, it's still very fluid as, you, as you're discovering things, uh, exploring your ideas, certain things being implemented, maybe apply certain constraints. Exactly. It's the a beautiful fascinating thing, business, this game's development scene. The beautiful thing about some of this stuff now, and for anyone listening who wants to be a game developer or is and wants to you know further their career, is all this stuff is easy and available to anyone now. Back in these days, and this was even like 2008, so not even that long ago, it was very difficult to get access to a game engine and all of this different software and learn how to do this stuff. But now you've got everything's free. Unreal Engine, uh, Unity, even various audio plugins like Wise and FMOD are free for low tiers to use to do incredible amounts of editing and processing depending on how much money you're making. The democratization of game development has well and truly occurred. And it's it's allowing some really cool ideas to bubble up too as a result of people having access to those sorts of things. Absolutely. There's, there's no, need for you to get, no need for you to get locked behind having to go and work for EA anymore if you want to do this stuff. Yeah, for sure. So the next thing I've got on the list here through this period of Sega is uh, the Castle of Illusion starring Mickey Mouse title. Ah, uh, so there was actually a game between Stormrise and that, oh, but I can I can go over it very briefly. No, no one please. really wants to hear about it. Uh, we did the London 2012 Olympics game. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, of which I did a bunch of different events. My favorite one being kayak, and my second favorite one being table tennis. And why those two? Because they offer the most amount of dynamics. Anything that has like a physics element to it, in terms of if you're doing an Olympic sport, is gonna be one of the most interesting ones to work on. Makes sense. Um, people probably don't think about this at all but working on an official olympics game really really hard you have a incredible level of visual fidelity you have to live up to um and then within that the constraints that that puts on you you have to somehow be able to make an interesting and entertaining gameplay experience out of sports that that are so complicated and make so little sense the average person doesn't even know their rules let alone (laughs) like how they're gonna enjoy themselves playing it if I challenge in a you, virtual in a, setting, yeah. yeah. If I sit you down and I say, "All right, I want you to imagine a, a great game design for playing um, playing the vault," right? Like, that's just this is really difficult. Or is yeah, I've got I, I've, I've got nothing for you already. It's just pole, really pole difficult. Vault. Like, I, I understand how pole vault works, um, but implementing that, you've got like three, in real life, it's challenging enough. And that's why so many times it just turns into like a little QTE style experience, basically, because it's hard to map out the physicality of running, getting the perfect stride length, uh, getting the perfect plant direction, pivoting your body up over the top. And you don't have that long. Oftentimes we would have a month or whatever to make an entire event, let alone 
you'd be thinking, oh, you could do something like Quop, but that would probably take you a year per event to get it to feel yeah. right. Um, so it's, it's actually it's surprising. It's not available to you for sure. No, not at all. It's a surprisingly complex type of game to make, so I can understand why they've never been too great. But all of this is just me making excuses for the fact that, again, it wasn't the best game. Um, but the constraints were, were interesting. No, that does still sound really cool, and I'm, I'm glad you, you raised that and we, did, and we didn't pass over it completely because that's that's quite interesting. Yeah. So then yeah. there is uh, the the Disney IP, Mickey Mouse, Castle of Illusion. What was that like yeah. to be a part of? Well, that was... Because again, you've got there's a there's a big body over the top there in Disney. Yeah, it's it's their their number one character. Um, so there's there's pressures that come with that. What was that like? Look, um, let me think about let me think about how to to talk about some of this for a second <clears throat> because it's a it's a difficult one. Basically, the transition period at the end of Olympics. Uh, I guess to cover this, I got to go back a little bit and talk about the transition into Olympics after Stormrise. Huge shakeup. So there was like 100 to 130 people total, including contractors working at Sega during its peak on Stormrise. Yep. After Stormrise, which we were still Creative Assembly at the time, we decided to start looking at different projects at one point. We were considering doing some more Total War-based stuff uh, was on the table. A few other different things were on the table. It ended up being the Olympics game because that was like a safe, secure project. Uh, we shed a lot of stuff a huge amount of staff. We hired some new staff. The turnover started getting ridiculous. And then that happened again at the end of Olympics and we started downsizing. We got to be fairly small after Olympics. People were, you know, concerned that we were continuing to shrink, basically. Well, things and, in the in the Australian scene full stop were still a, l- a little bit volatile at that particular point. Anyway, obviously the, the financial crisis was a few years earlier, but the industry locally was still getting back up on its feet. Yeah, pretty much. And every other studio aside from us, who was owned by an international company, had folded, I think, by this point. So uh, THQ had folded. um, Pandemic, you know, under EA, they had folded. Um, Chrome, who was working for LucasArts primarily, had folded. Uh, And Microsoft, I believe. They were working for LucasArts and then Microsoft. And, you know, all of the international projects, basically, they ended. And uh, as they ended, because the Australian dollar is just too strong, was the the gist of it. These companies became expensive. Where we used to be cheap work for hire. Now it was like, well, if you want an Australian company to make something, that project's going to cost as much as if you were getting it made by your top-end American developers. Um, Which is not really what these publishers are looking for. No, we we had well and truly positioned ourselves as a cheap-to-produce, high-quality games nation. We weren't producing things in like a really bad quality tier. We were okay, but we were cheap. And that's what they had come to expect on time, on budget kind of development. So everything kind of crashed down and we continued to shrink and everybody was pretty worried that things were, we're going to shrink to zero, basically. This is around like 20, well, I can't even remember what year, this would have been 2011, maybe 2012. Yep. Um, and basically what happened was uh, me and a couple other guys at the studio, so it started out with just me and Tim, decided to, uh, Tim Dawson, Tim who's Dawson. one of the, the founders of Witchbeam, decided to form... A little group where we would crunch on the Olympics during the day until nine o'clock at night or whatever. And then we'd go home to our apartments that were in the same suburb as the studio, so 10 minute walk for each of us. Uh, and we would crunch on a personal project. The plan was to bring that personal project into the studio because we knew that the heads of the studio were trying to develop things to pitch to Sega Europe as well. 
So we pitched a couple of things, stuff like I can't tell you about exactly what they were, but no, basically we made a personal project, um, personal prototype that was really well received by Sega Europe. And I think you could probably see some of this in the rant that Tim went on on Twitter after some of the Gold yes, stuff. Yes, which but we'll dive into shortly. Basically, the, the project was very well received by Europe and the internal stuff that the company was, was making like without us because we were crunching on Olympics, so we weren't actually making anything but that in our work time. That wasn't so well received. It was, it was okay. Um, and so for whatever reason, because our thing was so well received, uh, even though the project for many other reasons that I can't go into was not allowed to go forward, um, they then asked us to work officially on uh, on some other stuff. Oh, wait, wait. No, I've skipped something. I've skipped a beat. So we did that, and that, that was pretty well received. And then we got the news that they were basically pitching for the Castle of Illusion remake. Ah, yes. Um, Sega wanted to do a Castle of Illusion remake, but they had to convince Disney, was my understanding of the situation. And so Which they no, were looking... no small feat. No, and they were looking for us to convince Sega that we could do it, and then they would take whatever we used to convince Sega to convince Disney. <laughs> so they were making an internal... Uh, version of the prototype and I'll, I won't mince words, I had been fairly unhappy with the direction of some of the way that uh, internally we were approaching making these projects and I had been frustrated for a while and I think Tim had as well and we'd kind of seen that in some of the games that we'd made. The, the internal way that we were making games at Seagate wasn't very sustainable for making high quality games. Yes. So we got another designer named Cade Franklin. Fantastic guy. He won that Lego uh, Lego Creators competition that was on TV a couple oh, of years that, back. Uh, Lego Masters. Yeah, he's the, a the one with legend. Hamish Blake. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and he and me and Tim developed this Castle of Illusion prototype in our spare time at home while, once again, working on things at Sega during the day. And we brought it in, and people loved it. We showed it to them. Uh, it ended up getting shown to Sega Europe, who loved it, and they ended up and this is the weird part about how things worked at that studio, is we didn't get to show it to anyone at Disney or Sega International, but... They did it for you. The the heads of the company got to fly over to Japan and demo it to them, and they loved it and greenlit the project, actually. Oh, cool. Uh, whereupon, we came back and we started working out how to make it, and after a very short period of time, uh, you know, all creative control was wrestled completely away from us, which... Um, not so cool. Not so cool. And that's kind of where we ended up just... Shortly after that, then we had the Golden Axe stuff, uh, which I'll get into in a bit, and then yep. you know, me and Tim leaving. So yeah, the Castle of Illusion, just to talk about actually making it, though. Like, that was one of the most interesting projects that I think I'll ever work on in my life. I was yeah, so. so obsessed with wanting it to to be amazing. I had a lot of reverence for the original. Yeah, I was going to um, say, did that have in part something to do with the fact that it's a it's a remake of an established thing? Yeah, exactly yeah. right. My level of reverence was through the roof for the original. Um, the idea that I could do it wrong, do it poorly, put shivers down my spine. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, I can respect anyone that, you know, when they're looking to replicate or uh, or emulate a certain product, they they want to respect that original vision to the greatest degree possible. This was a game that was made by people at the peak of what they were doing. This was around the, the, the time that Sega was just doing Sonic. All of their studios were firing on all cylinders. They followed it up with the Fantastic World of Illusion. There was also Quackshot. There was this whole myriad of Disney games made by Sega teams that were just 
phenomenally good. And to have the chance to go and reimagine one of those and do something new and interesting with it, this is why we tried so hard to come up with a reason why it even justified doing a remaster or remake. Um, and we came up with the two, uh, the 2D, 3D switching stuff and the wrapping worlds and the wrapping yep. levels. Trying to just give it, give it a reason to exist, give it a reason to be like, well, I love the original. Here's something that's the original but slightly different, slightly uh, more interesting with the technology we can do now. Yeah, no, and, that's, um, that's cool. I like that. I even went to, uh, I was visiting Japan on a holiday with my family around about that time, and I went to, to Disneyland, and I bought a bunch of, like, really nice uh, glass figurines. And, well, not figurines, but, like, glass statue kind of things. Oh, yeah, I know the ones, yeah. And I brought them back, and I gave them to, like, the various leadership at Sega to be like, here, this, you know, something that we'll all have to remember working on this fantastic project by. And I'm a firm believer in going all in on something. If you work on it, you have to actually believe you can make something special and i did the same with the olympics i tried to do the same with Stormrise. you got to try and buy into what you're working on yeah so, otherwise there's no point you're only exactly you can't work phrase, on it. you're half-assing it there's no point if, if you're working on it from a perspective of like cynicism or anything like that I, I don't believe you'll ever create anything magical and the original game was magical yeah great Again, so, yeah, like we, I, as we discussed earlier on, like I wasn't the biggest uh, Sega kid in the world, but that was absolutely one of those things that really stuck out at me from a very early point. I 100% so agree work, with you. Working on it itself, though, was pretty pretty interesting. You had to uh, deal with the fact that there were a lot of constraints from it being a Disney game. Um, things like Mickey Mouse's ears need to point the wrong, the right way at all times, even in three dimensions, which... One of the more interesting technical problems to, that you'll ever get asked to solve, I'm sure. Uh, down to them talking about how we had to use certain elements from the original game, the worlds and music and bits and pieces like that, which I was all for. Personally, I think the best way to approach it was to take stuff from the original game, like the melodies and the music, and do new versions of that that sound modern and rich, rather than trying to reinvent or drastically change the tone of the experience so there's just like a lot that goes into working on a licensed game like that and even coming off the olympics i knew a lot about licensing but disney's very next level they protect their properties oh for sure i mean we hear all those sorts of things these days when it comes to star wars titles for example we're going to hear a lot more about that over the next few years i'm sure based on some of the news that's emerged recently uh, with Indiana Jones and Star Wars at Ubisoft and all those sorts of things, we're going to hear a lot about that. It's and they all fall under the Disney umbrella these days. So there is a a heightened degree of, I guess, creative control that they have upon their their IP. Absolutely, and even in this case where it was developed by Sega, because it was still using Disney properties, everything would have to run through and be approved by Disney. You know, the visual designs, the different elements you're using, it can't look like other Disney characters that you don't have. But at the same time. It has to have a Disney feel to it. And so there, there's just like so much that goes into that. And I think that what interested me was that uh, they've obviously been doing this for long enough that this is why their stuff is so consistent. And the producer that we, that we had, the one that we had to convince at Disney, it turned out they were the producer on the original game at Sega, Japan. And now oh, they right. worked for Disney. The, the, the whole thing was very Small roundabout, world. you know. And there was just a lot of people who cared a lot about this project. So I, I really loved it. Um, I got to learn a lot about designing uh, platformers and working very, very closely with 3D artists in a small team and with Cade and with Tim. 
So that was really the genesis of how I learned to be a little bit more self-sufficient um, and have the idea that maybe we could do something on our own where we'd have more creative freedom. So a really great project. I wish it had turned out a little bit better. There was, it's still pretty good, I think, but it's. I, it was be- I remember enjoying playing it when it when it came out. It was frustrating enough that when I left the studio, I left before it released. Uh, so I'll just oh, right, leave okay. it at that. No, that's that's fair enough. So we've we've alluded to it a couple times now. We we'll we'll get it out of the way before we then focus on Witchbeam and your own creative endeavors outside of uh, Sega. Golden Axed. Uh, obviously that bubbled up last year, I think much to the surprise of yourself and Tim. Uh, I, th- I think I might leave the floor open to you here to kind of t- talk about this one. Like that it seemed to catch all of you by surprise. Uh, t- uh, as you mentioned before, uh, Tim's uh, comments on Twitter uh, certainly got a lot of traction, that's for sure. Um, but how did how did that project emerge? What What was that like for you to be involved with? And then to see it all those years later, just suddenly, well, not so suddenly, it was marketed that was coming, but just pop up on on Steam. Like yeah, did. so, I mean, Tim has the Twitter thread for anybody who wants the, the juicy gossip details that all of the websites, news websites have posted excerpts from. Look for Ironic Account on Twitter, which yes. is Tim Dawson. Picked um, it to, t- to death, they did. But... Uh, the, the long and the short of it is after the incredibly successful internal prototypes that we'd done that led to getting this project, keeping the studio going, they started pitching for new things because you can't, you know, be working on this thing. They needed to get new projects greenlit and they needed to get uh, more staff and things going on the go, basically. So the question and, became, what can you do with Golden Axe? Yeah, the question became, what can you do and who can do it? And basically they worked out that you know, me and Tim were essentially the people who had the skill set and the experience to prototype stuff. So they asked us to create a Golden Axe prototype that they could then take over to E3 or wherever it was to pitch to Sega Europe to get a bunch of funding for a project. Uh, and the, the yeah, the short of it is we were given a very short time frame. It was a couple of weeks to start with. I think it got extended by one week. But part of that one week was like it had to be still finished before that last week. It just could get visual polishing. Yes. Um, and within those couple of weeks, we had to make this all-encompassing gameplay demo that was real-time, actual gameplay, but had AAA equivalent level graphics for the time. And this was in 2012, so we're talking end of Xbox 360, pre-next gen, pre-PS4 pre era. Series, uh, and Xbox One, yeah. Yeah, so it was designed to be an Xbox 360 game, but it'd be a very pretty Xbox 360 game. We were using a lot of the technology we'd built out of Different, different things, well, in terms of the art side, but in terms of the actual technology, it was built on Unity um, because that was the only way that me and Tim knew how to prototype. And it didn't end up going very well internally. Like, I'm, I'm very proud of the project that we ended up creating and it was released publicly, as you said, recently. But uh, basically there was a lot of strife over that creation, a lot of stress, a lot of kind of broken promises, uh, very frustrating things. Ended up being again super well regarded, green lit. I believe the project was green lit even when I left Sega. It was still technically considered to be green lit. I don't know yeah, what okay. point it was officially killed. I know that it had been scaled down into like back burner status by the time I left, but at one point it had a full budget. There was a plan to make that game. So it wasn't like they were unhappy with the prototype. 
do you think the fact that it kind of fell by the wayside was in part because you and Tim had moved on? Or no, I don't think no. anybody at Sega actually knew who me and Tim were. Okay, right. I, f- I feel like that was fairly deliberate on the behalf of the people who led Sega Studios Australia. Um, as I said, we never got to show any of our prototypes to anyone, so it doesn't really matter. But uh, but basically, I think it got downgraded because things weren't going as smoothly on the Castle Illusion game as Sega Europe had hoped. So even though they kept seeing this like glimmers of hope for us as a studio, it never came to fruition. And eventually Sega would get shut down without Golden Axe becoming an active project after Castle Illusion released. So me and Tim decided at some point to, to leave Sega a little while after Golden Axe. I left first, then him shortly after me, which is... Uh, sorry, he left first, then me shortly after him. Which is funny because I tried to leave first, and that's why he left. <laughs> I, I went right, for okay. another... I went for another job interview somewhere, and he's like, well, I can't be bothered with this anymore, so I'm going to take another job. And then I didn't get the job that I interviewed for. That's uh, Remedy's Loss. I was there. Oh, you to... had a crack at Remedy. Okay. Yeah, I was doing an a interview for a technical designer at Remedy who would have been working on Quantum, Quantum Break. Quantum Break, yeah. Um, but they hired someone who was from Finland, which was a little bit more of a safe bet, I think. I, yeah, I can understand why they might do that. They're loss, but I can understand why they might might do that. Yeah, I, I totally get it. And, you know, the other person was probably more suited for the, the job that they were interviewing for. I can't say at the time I had a lot of technical skills. I definitely have more now having had to do everything myself. So, yeah, Tim had left for another job. I decided to quit on my own eventually without a job. And that's when I, I pitched him on, look, let's start our own thing. And we started Witchbeam, which was uh, trying to make a game without the creative frustration. Sure, we had a lot of financial frustration, but, but that's we were the nature of the beast when you're starting a studio, I'd imagine. Exactly, and, and the goal was to, to do it without the, the creative frustration that we'd been stuck with for the last couple of years at Sega. Even though there's a lot of people I love at Sega, I will point out uh, I was there for five years. There was close to 130 people there at the peak when I was there in, in the first couple of months. And of those people, zero of them were still full-time employees at Sega when I quit five years later. Cool. The turnover had been 100%. When you walked out, that was it. It was done. No, no, there were still employees. There was just oh, yeah, zero no, no, of the original. Of the, yeah, the existing. Team yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah. So, absolutely, that's just I've never heard of that level of turnover personally. Yeah, it's that's crazy. But as you mentioned, this is the the perfect opportunity to segue across. Uh, which beam was formed? How long did it take before you landed on the idea that would ultimately become a sold Android cactus? It's actually something Tim had been kicking around for a couple of years pre-joining Sega even. It was like a test project that he had done to teach himself programming at one point. Yeah, okay. And the first time he showed it to me, I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is super cool. I love it. It's it's amazing. I can't believe you've done all of this already. Uh, it'll be great when there's a game here. And I, I remember saying this because I didn't realize at the time how much work he'd put into it. And his heart fell out of his body and i i he felt crushed. very bad i felt terrible um, well what was it that you were seeing at the time that made you think that it had uh it basically had the base level of mechanical excellence that you would expect out of somebody who had gone i'm gonna make a twin stick shooter and it has to have good twin stick shooter controls and stuff to shoot and to me that's like not a game and, and it isn't to tim either i actually think 
going to be a little bit real with you here. I think Tim is a far superior game developer and even game designer to, uh, than I am. But I do have talents that he doesn't have and, and vice versa. No, but that's what, that's what makes the partnership work. Exactly right. You bounce but, off um, each other. He's definitely the, um, the, the Steve Wozniak and the Steve Jobs all in one of our relationship. <laughs> so what does and that I'm make like, you then? Uh, just the, the guy who signs bits of paperwork. Oh, you're but, an admin. But in this case, I did realize that um, basically there wasn't a game there yet. There was just like smooth Potential. controls and nice flashy visuals and a concept for characters that feel and look good in three dimensions. And so we we discussed it and like worked out different game mechanics that we could apply. Uh, what started talking about what we found to be problematic in the twin stick shooter space and what we really liked because I think it's it's important to actually address both. If you just focus on what you don't like in something, then you can so often put a lot of work into uh, improving aspects of the game that are kind of irrelevant and not doubling down on bits that you really love that you can make even better. Yeah, I understand. Um, so, so when, yeah, we. When did you okay. know that you that the product had gotten like you'd found what the what the game needed to be at that point? So again, like there's there's the core, there's there's potential there, there's something to this. Where, did you have a particular a moment? Was there an epiphany? We're going okay. We've we've found the we've found this. This is this is the formula. This is what we need to now just polish up and refine to make it the product that it ultimately became. Yeah, definitely. There was there was definitely a genesis point where we looked at it and said, "Mystic um, shooters are not about hiding when you are in danger. The most fun part of twin stick shooters are when you're shooting your going, way out of it." Yeah, it's when you're going ham, when you're shooting everything. Uh, the least fun part about Twin Stick Shooter is when you feel like you're on the edge of death and so you hide in a corner. Um, and then we came up with this system with the uh, battery. It wasn't actually a battery at the time. It, w- it was very different. We we changed the, I guess, the lore of the battery several yes. times uh, eventually to, to settle on what it was. There was heat systems. There was all kinds of stuff, but it was always the same mechanic, this idea that you had to go and grab stuff and engage in the level. And that was how you would progress and become stronger. And that, you know, being knocked down was largely irrelevant. It was just a, a soft penalty that would lead to your eventual failure. And, and would coax people out of that corner if that's where they decided to, to yeah. exist hiding in the corner. Yeah, basically it came down to now if you're almost losing, if you're on the edge of failure, your best move is to attack, not to defend. And that's what's most fun in a shoot 'em up. Yeah, no, I hundred percent agree. And um I mean that 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 period when the when the game came out uh, came out, like that's off the back of you know, things that kind of spring to my mind being a lot of house marks titles, for example. They're, you know, doing fantastic twin stick uh, shooters at the time and I picked up a sold Android Cactus either when it came out or shortly after. I was certainly there quite early on anyway. Yep. And I latched onto it immediately for all those reasons that you were discussing. Like I was really, really gripped by the, the action and the characters, the characters were fantastic as well. And there's those other layers, which I'm sure we'll discuss as well. Yep. But the, yep. the core, the core concept, it fit with what Housemark did so well and what other uh, twin stick shooters have done so well over the years. And it's what you said. It's, it's not enjoyable to be trapped in the corner there or to be bunkered down looking for an opportunity to escape. It's about shooting your way out and getting on the front foot. Exactly and right. That's what I loved so much about Assault Android Cactus when it came out. There's, and then there's every... a lot of hours on my PS4 dedicated to that game. Um, I'm very glad that you liked it. I, I Hopefully, 
we'll get to one day do a, a sequel because I've since spent several years thinking about how to reduce the frustrations that that system, like I'm so proud of the system we came up with, but I have obviously heard the complaints from people who aren't into that level of, I guess the sense of soft failure that it can bring is the biggest yeah. problem. Um, the idea that you didn't actually fail at the moment that the game gives you a game over, you just ran out of time and you didn't feel like you didn't get hit by anything, you didn't get destroyed by anything. But I have oh, ideas. Yeah. I have a lot of ideas for how to keep the soul of what we did and the importance of that push, that mechanical push, while actually giving people uh, that other sense of hard, distinct failure. So one day maybe I'll get to make that sequel. Well, I for one would be very... Actually, I won't even say for one because one of my oldest friends and my wife are both big fans of the game and would be ecstatic to to learn about uh, th that game like, if it were ever to happen. Yeah, they'd be they'd be beyond ecstatic to to take it for a spin. Um, that was one of the very first. Ga I mean, well, I think playing it with her was one of the very first. Uh, well, very early on in our relationship, and she just she she loved it. So it holds a little special place there for the two of us, even just playing that in co-op, and then friends coming in and and jumping in with us, and all those sorts of things. So she would be beyond excited to be able to play that uh, if a sequel emerged. So. It's on my to-do list. It's on my bucket list, basically. I've told people I'm going to make that game before I die, but otherwise the timeline is still TBD. Uh, we're, we're happy to wait. We'll wait. <laughs> Whenever you're ready, you just go for it. But uh, then, the, then the reception of the game, which was f overall pretty good, I believe. Um, I, were, were you all very happy with how it was received externally when it, when it did come out? I know I've just sung its praises, but uh, uh, it's, across it's the board... I mean, it's pretty overwhelming, the level of positivity that it's gotten for the tiny kind of niche space that it exists in. Uh, you know, it's... I'll rant off some numbers here because oh, I remember these it. things, but, you know, it's overwhelmingly positive reviewed on Steam. It's got, like, an 86 on the Switch version, which is our highest-rated version on, on Metacritic out of all the, the averages of the various people. It's got more 9 out of 10s and even a few 10 out of 10s from the people who really connect with this kind of game than I can count. And just, you know what? This stuff, it's just, it's actually, it brought me to tears a few times to see people connect with what we were doing and feeling that joy out of something that we made, something that we had complete control over that... I wouldn't say Castle Illusion is my game, or the Olympics is my game, or Storm Rise is my game. I worked on those games, and I'm proud with what I've contributed to all of them. And I'm immensely proud of the work that, that the rest of the team did, even when I was frustrated with the creative process. But Cactus is my game, and it's Tim's game, and both of us would claim that it's our game. And to have that level of response to it, it's it's just special. I can see where the tears would come from. It's Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can really appreciate that. And um, it's it's quite it's lived on quite a lot in the years since. Like, the, a lot of people still come back to it. I mean, obviously, here we are discussing it now, but, like, it does... I have seen it referenced when, when other twin-stick shooters emerge. It's, you know, comparisons get drawn between those and, obviously, Housemark titles, but also Assault Android Cactus. And, um, yeah. That, yeah. I think my, that one of my proudest... References when I, I met the developers who worked on um, Enter the Gungeon, which is one of my favorite games oh, ever. Oh, Dodge Roll, yes. Uh, I met them before it came out, and they weren't even sure how their game was going to do. They, I mean, they actually didn't have a lot of confidence in it that this particular developer was a programmer on it. Uh, he loved what they'd done, but he was like, I don't know if we're going to find a market for it. 
and uh, he told me how much that he loved what, what we'd done and how a lot of our designs had inspired them and, and some of the weapon designs in their game. And that was the kind of moment where I was like, we made something that actually now other people are taking a look at what we did and they're making better stuff because of it. And like, that was that's a really massive, yeah, massive moment. Because that's exactly how I look at, at what other people have done, especially what House Marquee have done. I played, must have been, you know, two or three hundred hours of uh, Su- Super Stardust HD. Yeah, that's that's one a lot of people come back to. It's it's fantastic. And I tried it yep. out in VR at one point. Man, that put my head for a spin, but I love it. <laughs> it's mental. So while we're while we're continuing down the witch witch beam pathway, the your current work is foolproof. I'd yes. love to learn a little bit about that, and we should probably also talk about it uh, with the listeners here for anyone who's not aware of the title it's still in in development at the moment what is foolproof well first of all that's a working title so it's going to have a totally different name when we eventually have a trailer or something to show the public just uh to give you a heads up but i'm not not revealing that name quite yet just but you do know what it is at this stage i I do know what it is just for no other reason than you know i'm just going to do the whole thing at once basically when when i'm ready to show the game no i can appreciate that Feel free uh, to just I can, randomly I can, drop the word in at some point during the conversation and we'll see if the eagle-eared listeners will pick it up. Yeah, uh, well, d- foolproof, foolproof does encapsulate a lot of what the game's about because uh, it is a game about making foolproof plans. Yes. Um, but some of the original prototype stuff, which was guiding kind of idiots to steal treasure, isn't really the case for the theme or the nature of the game anymore, but it, it does have a lot of the, the similar gameplay themes and concepts. So it's actually a puzzle game, um, completely different space to Cactus. We're moving away from real time. Everything here is pre-planning and then execution. So you've got a planning phase and an execution phase. And the closest facsimiles I can use are basically Choo Choo Rocket and Lemmings, I guess. Um, Lemmings in the sense that that uh, when you're planning, you're essentially trying to put down these little commands or issues for for your minions to use, and they're going to go and they're going to pick them up, and they'll have to do what they say. Uh, and choo-choo rocket because of the presentation. It's it's going to be these little diorama levels where you um, you know are guiding things around with with preset objectives and trying to. I don't know if you played choo-choo rocket, but uh, you basically yes, yeah, were guiding. Guiding these little mice to to escape on rocket ships away from giant cats, and so it's it's a kind of cross between those concepts, but it is its own thing as well. I hate to to describe something only in in the terms of what other games are, but without being able to to show it, I haven't really prepared a, a high level marketing strategy for this that, game yet. That takes it's still time. in the early stages. No, that that sort of thing still takes time, and in that, up until that point, yeah, those comparisons are going to be helpful, and not. I'm starting to get a bit of a sense. I've said there's some little bits of art that have been put out there um, as well. So I'm starting to get a bit of an idea in a sense for what you're going for without having seen it myself. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's basically my attempt to make something small with some friends of mine um, because we're split up as a team and a company at the moment. Tim is working on a, a lovely project with uh, his partner, Ren, unpacking. called Unpacking. Uh, which you had Ren on the show. And... Yeah, a few months ago. So if anyone listening uh, wants to learn a bit more about that, go check out the episode with Ren from last year. And that's a much larger project than what we're trying to do with, with Foolproof. So we're hoping to develop this kind of in parallel um, and get back together as a team after that project and this project do finish. Just so that um, so that I had something to, to work on that, that interests me. And I am pretty 
passionate about as well. I think this game has a lot of potential. Funnily enough, the person who probably has the most belief in this project and, and people connecting with it is Jeff. Jeff, yeah, okay. Jeff loves this game. What is it? Uh, was it? What is it about the game for him that's got him so invested? So I think it's just the the nature of the puzzles. They're these little three D dioramas that you're planning out and you know entirely kind of shifting between the thought process, then watching it and making minor adjustments and resetting the whole thing. Uh, to watch your plan play out. And he's just really into that, I think. Um, and I'm into it, but uh, I've always said to him, look, I- I'm into it and I think there's a market and here's my justification for it. And I made that justification to Screen Queensland who have backed the game. Thank you so much to Screen Queensland who are making it so we can afford fantastic artists to help flesh it out. Uh, but at the same time, I've always said to Jeff, look, I don't know if it's going to sell 10,000 copies or 10 million copies, but I think it's neat. <laughs> and here's the reasons why I think it, it has an audience. So. Well, I mean, that, that cycles back to what you were talking about before about the investment in, your, in what you're creating and how important that is and c- clearly visible in both yourself and Jeff, especially Jeff, apparently. But um, no, that, that's great to hear. And yes, the, the funding or the, the backing from uh, Screen Queensland is also an important factor as well. Um, I did see uh, when you were awarded that, that support middle of last year, roughly, if, if I recall. Yes, yes, it was towards the, um, towards the end of last year, basically. In in the hellfire that is twenty twenty, that would be a very nice uh, portion of the year when when that went down. Yeah, it's been fantastic. It's allowed us to hire um, the the Starks, who are known as Disparity Games, to help yes. us with the art for it, as well as some fantastic concept artists who um, just happen to be based out of Japan, even though they're both Australian, which is kind of funny because one of the the fellows that I'm working with on the game, um, Seiji, he was the uh, animator on Journey. I don't know if you played that game, oh, but I yes. like that game a lot. Yes, everyone loves Journey. And he lives in Japan, so now we've got like this team that's split between like Japan and Australia, even though it's 95% Australians. No, that's uh, it. Looks it looks good though uh, optically. You get people pulling people from all around the globe, and that that's great. Yeah, yeah, so I'm really happy with, with how things are going. I wish I had more that I could show you rather than just talking about it. But no, no, that's fine. You'll Soon have enough. to wait a Soon little enough. while. The world can wait. Um, do you dabble every now and then at all with any of the unpacking stuff or is that really purely like Tim and Ren and you're off doing your own thing? You don't kind of bounce in and out from time to time at all? I keep track of it. So we're all in the, obviously, the, the same Discord together and, yes. and developing it. And then we go and have the Witchbeam off Christmas party and we hang out in person as well because we all like each other and we all work together. Always handy uh, when the team gets along. And I'm, I'm playing it, but uh, I've also tried not to play it too much because I want to be able to give like uh, really good feedback sessions with them. Yes. So instead of working on it day to day, I'll be able to like play a new build and everything will actually be completely fresh when they're watching me play it, um, which I think might be helpful. Maybe it's the, the wrong way to go about things, but uh, that's kind of the way that we've been doing it at the moment. I'm also working on the business side of the project. So yep. always liaising with Tim and Ren because um, I do a lot of the paperwork for Witchbeam in general. I do all of our taxes and all of that kind of stuff. So I've worked out like what we can afford, how we can afford different contractors because we're trying to spend all the money that we made on Cactus on this, basically. Yes, yeah, um, that makes sense. Because we don't ever want to do it all ourselves again. It's un- it's unhealthy and the quality of the project suffers. So yeah. this time we're hiring people, we're paying people. Um, Ren didn't have any uh, necessarily 
the ability to do what we did with with forming Witchbeam and go all in on our own either. So, you know, we have uh, Ren and everybody trying to basically have some money that they can live on while they make the game. And they've also got backing from from um, Screen Queensland, which was really fantastic. Screen Queensland seems to be all in on our company. Yeah, they're, they're, they're loving what uh, is coming out of Witchbeam, and I don't blame yeah. them. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, Sold Android Cactus, fantastic. Uh, I spoke about it with, with Ren when, when she was on the show last year. Uh, what I played of the, the demo that was publicly put out there, uh, for unpacking fantastic what you're uh what you're describing for me in this particular case sounding fantastic so i don't i don't blame uh screen queensland for getting behind you guys yeah i'm i'm pretty happy about it and hopefully they're happy with, with how things are going um, but yeah we're trying to trying to do this one a little bit healthier than we did with cactus because uh you know it was at times just it's too much which we, we tried to do too much we were just three people and we were literally three people in the sense that a lot of a lot of the time you'll hear about solo developer or two person team and then they've got actually those five people doing the music and this and that but for the most part i'd say 95 percent of what you see in cactus was made entirely by me uh tim and jeff and here seeing here but of course so, it's, you know it's very hard to get it 100 percent right the first time anyway in terms of the the work-life balance and the finances and all those sorts of things there's there's a lot of things you would learn from doing you know trialing and failing in some areas that you can then refine and polish the second time around. And that's, that's yeah, sounds exactly like that's right. exactly what's happening here with both unpacking and currently referred to as foolproof. So, yeah, 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 exactly. Correct. That's, and that's, that's the nature of development. The main, the main reason I just keep bringing it up is that I think it's really important for people who are looking to get into this game development stuff to, and you know, forming their own company and keeping on doing things. It's really easy to fall into unhealthy habits with development and it's quite important, I think, now that the older I get and the more I look at this and the life balance of different people to really think hard about the sustainability of what we're doing. And I, that's how I've always looked at game development in Australia and that historically the, the biggest problem we had is stuff wasn't owned and operated by Australians. The profits weren't coming back to us. So even when we had big successes, it didn't necessitate like a long-term stability here. And part of long-term stability is not just the money that we make, but the human cost and yep. making sure that we're all happy and healthy and able to, to stay productive and make the next game. If anything, that human cost is actually the most important part outside, you know, the financial one. Yeah, That absolutely. all falls apart if you don't have the team to underpin the whole project in the first place. So I 100% exactly agree. Right. So outside of which beam then, you've also done a few little bits and pieces on the side, uh, some QA for Thumper, uh, you've been credited special thanks for Manifold Garden, Forts, Hand of Fate 2, Salt and Sanctuary, Blastem. Uh, what have those various experiences been like? And what sort of capacities were you were you working with those uh, various developers? Oh, I've, it depends on the, the one. You rattled off a whole bunch there, so I'll just go over some oh, of them. Yeah, but for the, That's right. But for the most part, it came down to opportunities to just help people that I really like in the game development community. So... You got Byron with Blastem. That's a very small and uh, very neat kind of side-scrolling shoot 'em up that he made a, a couple of years back. That I just did a bunch of playing for and gave him some feedback and you know noted some bugs and different things. Um, and that's you know really generous of him to, to put me in. And a special thanks for that. I actually uh, yeah. So that, there's a lot of worthy. that that happens. <laughs> there is a lot of that where it doesn't feel worthy. Some of it's a little bit more worthy than others. With Manifold Garden. Um, that was a really weird scenario where he was, uh, William Cheer was looking for 
some finishing funds and help with the the final push and publishing. And uh, it happened to be at the time that someone I knew was working for a fund and looking for games, and they were considering that one. They they asked me for my advice to do some consulting to basically, you know, see what I thought of the different projects and give feedback. So I looked at it and I'd known about the project for a long time and met William at a a few different events and basically told them that I thought he was doing an incredible job at building his own community and that his game was really interesting and had the the potential to be massive but uh, it would really come down to whether or not they could nail stick the landing which is why they was looking for for funding so I was like yes you should absolutely fund this and then they ended up doing that and I ended up writing a bunch of feedback on on builds at different points in time, so I guess he he added me in for that one. And I mean, um, the game the game did do really well. It was, it was quite popular, so yeah, uh, and yeah, it's just an incredible game right. as well. William worked on that. Like, I mean, I was proven right, but more like he was proven right. What a fantastic effort! I can't believe how good that game is. Yeah, um, I actually haven't tried it myself, but there's a few people, a few friends of mine who have, and they they can't speak highly enough of it. So. It's, it's it's one of those ones phenomenal. that I that I've bought and it's sitting there on the in the the pile of shame the to do list pile at the moment that hopefully I'll be able to engage with it sometime this year. Yeah, so a lot of it's basically just opportunities where I happen to know someone at the right time or gave some advice to to someone else. I have done a little bit of work though. Like I said, I did some some consulting um, for that uh, the group that was looking at funding different projects, and then I was in twenty. 2019 i was living in japan for a couple months doing some consulting actually um just basically contracting out to do design on a game that that was being made over there uh nothing public again that that i can talk about unfortunately but i do have some some time where i had a bit of downtime after we released cactus and tim and ren moved on to unpacking that was largely because i was dealing with some some personal health issues that i now have a little bit more under control um and then they were working on that, so I was just looking at where I could help my friends. And you meet a lot of people doing the event circuit, basically. No, I'd imagine uh, you just even think about just going to like a PAX, for example, and the 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 dozens, hundreds of different studios are set up there, and you know each of those studios has sometimes, well, you know, a few people anyway, to sometimes quite large numbers of people involved. It's it, really great networking opportunities for sure. Yeah, and that that's really where a lot of my special thanks and stuff come from. I don't want to try to make a too big a deal out of any of them. I'll, I'll help out anyone if they ask me to and I have the time. But I'd imagine also for you, there's there's some great learning experiences you can take from those as well, seeing how other people go about their business. And I'm sure there's little things that you've picked up over the journey that you've back, been able to bring back with you to some of your work. Yeah, absolutely. Every time you work with somebody else on their project, you get to see an insight into their how they approach process. things. and. You know, the old saying about there's a hundred ways to skin a cat or whatever it is. A uh, hundred ways to build true. a game. A hundred ways to build a game. I don't know where that skin a cat one comes from. It always scares me when I hear it. I'm like, this, yeah, it's this a, sounds terrifying. It's a weirdly intimidating uh, turn, of, turn of phrase, actually. But there, there are. There's just so many ways to solve a problem. And that's inherent to design. Like when you're doing user feedback testing for a game and you sit down, you try not to bias people with the questions that you ask them. Um just as a baseline, because you, if you can manage to ask your questions in such a way that you get neutral responses, you'll find that there's actually a million and one different viewpoints on even the simplest thing where you go, oh, well, obviously you have to do X, Y, Z, and they go, no, you need to do A, B, C. 
Um, and it can be quite interesting at times. So yeah, seeing the different perspectives in game development. Yeah, and both can be equally right me. sometimes. Exactly. Um, I, I love that about game development in a lot of ways that we can passionately argue until the end of time about what we should do. And sometimes there's no winner like, and no loser. Everyone's exactly. everyone's right. Yeah. In different yeah, that, ways. That can definitely be the case. So, and it, oh, yeah. sorry, go on. I was just going to say that that's basically about interpreting, right? Like interpreting feedback is the basics, the most basic skill a game designer has, I think. Yeah, for sure. So as we move away from the games themselves, we'll cycle a little bit back more towards you and, and your time and your, ex, your experiences and your influences. And at least the first question I'll ask you, which is, is there anyone out there that really inspires you and the way you go about your, your work? Anyone maybe you've worked with that's inspired you or that you look at from afar mm. that really maybe in some ways, not necessarily all, of course, but have, have guided the way you go about your development work? There's a lot of people uh, that do that for me. Early on, there's people... Discussed, I'd imagine there like, would be a lot of people, yeah. There's industry greats and legends, like Yu Suzuki, definitely. Yes. As uh, one that I, I looked to in a lot of the early Sega stuff that, as I said, defines what video games are for me, came from him and, and that era of arcade games. Um, so I definitely love love what they were doing. Uh, specific individuals, it's really a tricky one because I like to just, I like to sample <laughs> a lot of different stuff. I like to no, take that's fair enough too. tiny, tiny bits of inspiration from everyone. Well, that's, that links back to what we're talking about with the special thanks before and having worked with all those other teams, you're going to see little bits here and you're going to see little bits there and you'll, you'll take some things, but leave others because they don't necessarily fit with the way you go about your work. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It, that That's very much how I've looked at things is more than any one singular vision for how games should be. I like to look at the way that lots of people think about things and go, oh, well, which one applies in this singular situation I'm in? Because if I'm going to try and make a game like a Miyamoto game, I'm probably going to listen to Miyamoto. But if yeah. I'm trying to make a different game, I'm going to listen to someone else. Yeah, I want to make a Kojima game, I'll listen to Kojima. If I want to make a, this, that, yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I will say for sure, though, I think um, Kojima is a genius, a mad genius. He's definitely a weird pervert, but he's also <laughs> a mad genius. And um, we have to respect that side of it, at the very least. Yeah, and the people aren't wrong when they say that he's a weird pervert and that like a lot of his character designs and other things are definitely, you know, a little bit... Uh, risque? Risque and maybe not so cool in, in the world and maybe he should work on those elements, but... Also, a lot of what he does is just so wildly obsessive that it boggles my mind. The level of finite detail that he has in a, in a AAA game. And these games are... I don't think people understand the scope of these games. The sheer oh. magnitude of what goes into making them. The number of people, the amount of assets. Um, and yet you have someone like that. Yeah, exactly. And you have someone like that who's then obsessing over the most minute of detail and, and design and placement of a box and stuff. I, I really do admire the way that he's managed to do that. And I don't envy him because I never want to make a, a game where I have like 500 employees. Or or the uh, hundreds of thousands to millions of people consu on the consumer side just breathing down your throat. Yeah. Breathing down your neck, sorry, all day, every day. 
Yeah, so it's definitely one of those things where, where I do like that. Thanks for, for mentioning him. I do often forget, but whenever I see an, a Kojima quote, or sometimes I'll read that um, the document of Metal Gear Solid 2. I don't know if you've read that one, the design document. No, I can't uh, say I have. Where at one point they were planning to call it Metal Gear Solid 3 just to confuse people. And <laughs> they were worried that the visuals wouldn't entice or excite people because they're all used to all these other much prettier looking PS2 games. So their plan was to have like larger scope and a finer level of uh, physical accurate detail. And then they ended up making the prettiest game and the most detailed game and having the most amount of simulated detail. So Yeah, why not, why not do all of them instead? Well, it's just fascinating because from their perspective, they were talking about how like that wasn't their strength and everyone else was going to be so much better than them. And I guess everyone, no one really knew at the time. There wasn't this level of interoperability in the games industry that was very isolated in the yes. early PS2 era. They had no idea that they were basically at the forefront of everything. Yeah, they all thought they were trailing, and in the end, actually quite the opposite. Because they thought they were trailing, that's when they made the plan to, to make the game the way they did, and it ended up just being like this massive success. The best decision possible. Uh, if you could be... Sorry, no, I nearly squ- uh, skipped a question there. Uh, what have been some of the most valuable lessons that you've picked up over the, over the journey so far that you've Ooh. really brought with you into, into your work? What's the what's the quote? Um, I don't know if I'm I'm bastardizing this quote, but the uh, people are uh, people are never wrong about how they feel, but usually uh, or often wrong about why. I think yes, that, that's yes, a I lesson. One. Yeah, so it's yeah. You might be paraphrasing a tiny bit, but I, yes, I do know the one you're talking about. It's really and fantastic one there. That kind of applies to. I think everything in life, not just game development, but it especially applies to game development where you make wild, massive changes based on people telling you that something should be more like X or Y. And what you really need to hear from them is how they felt because then, like we said, there's a million and one ways to make a game. And just because they felt that, you know... You should go one way, that's not necessarily the case. They're like, I really hate this part of the game. You should make it like blah. I'm like, well, it's good that you told me you hate that part of the game, but your uh, suggestion to make it different in a specific way is not necessarily helpful. And I'm try to be really cognizant of that when I give feedback to other developers. I try to focus on what I think the issue is, and then I provide a possible solution, and then say, but you know, obviously, the solution is your job. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, understanding why the person might hate that one particular component is is the most important part of it because then you can be really analytical after the fact. Yeah, yeah, basically. And I learned that a lot the hard way on Cactus with people who dislike the battery system. And I'm like, yeah, they, I can see what they dislike here, that the, the solution is not to turn the battery off, that that would make the game terrible. Uh, but I appreciate that you hate the battery mechanic and you're not wrong to say that you hate it. Your feeling is completely valid. Your feelings are always valid, basically. It's just the how we get there that's the key. Exactly right. So now for some curly ones as we wrap things up. If you could be credited for any game that has ever existed, so retroactively you're adding your name into the credits, what game would it be? In any capacity, I might add. So it could just be another case of special thanks, but... In any particular capacity, if you want to be responsible Ooh. for one particular part of a game that might otherwise be crap, um, then that's okay as well. Hmm. I would want to be credited as the lead balance designer on Warcraft 3. 
Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean that's that's masterful what they've got there. So I, I don't blame you whatsoever. Not to mention obviously your your background with the with the game. Yeah, it's just such an interesting game, and I assume being credited on it means that I would have actually got to work on it. So you would have gotten to work on it. That was my my twofer. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe one day, maybe they'll maybe they'll do something with it again, and uh, your name might feature in some capacity. Who knows? There'll be another RTS. I I've recently been hanging out a little bit with some of the devs at um, Frost Giant on the internet. They're part of the Warcraft Three community that that I hang around in. Yeah. Um. They're the guys who, guys and girls who left Blizzard to form their own company to make strategy games because they weren't able to make them at Blizzard anymore. I guess. And um. You know, I'm really hopeful for what they do because they all seem incredibly switched on. So maybe one day we'll have a spiritual successor. Yeah, that'd be quite cool. Watching, and if nothing else, be watching from afar. Yeah, which would be cool. Uh, last one before we deal with uh, the social stuff, and again, another curly one. Uh, if you could erase and then replay any game that's ever existed, so you could just wipe your memory, stri- strike it from your uh, from your mind, and just go at it again from scratch. Presumably because maybe it's your favourite game ever or something along those lines. What uh, what game would that be? Res. Oh yeah, okay. That no no hesitation. You, yeah, you've you've clearly either answered that question before or thought along that line before. You were ready to go with that one. But uh, I don't need to though. I I just I replay it endlessly anyway. It um, it's an eternal video game. It's a perfect video game. It's a perfect video game in a different way than Tetris is a perfect video game. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I I haven't put I, I've put a bit of time into Res, not a crazy amount of time into Res. I certainly haven't come back to it multiple times, but I I do think I understand where you're coming from though with it. There's just a level of catharsis that comes from playing that game. It it, it evokes many different emotions in me. It's one of the few games where I feel like the emotional element from the limited amount of story it has coincides with the the way that the physicality of what it's asking you do is part of that story it's part of that that experience i don't know if you've actually finished the last boss but there's elements there where it was a long time ago so i'm not i I don't don't think so my gut says no it's somewhat unfortunate for for people who have uh issues with their hands and being able to to press buttons but i think a lot of that game does come down to the way that it asks you to interact with the controller and there's moments yeah, okay. where you're spamming buttons and moving things around and just it, it all leads to a very an Sounds overwhelming fun. sense of emotion no that that's awesome and, and a very good choice so as we wrap things up i want to make sure that we uh talk about the the games that are in development again and uh also where people can speak to you or reach out to you follow you yeah. uh if they're so willing so Let's quickly, uh, again, discuss both foolproof and um, unpacking. Where would people be best to go if they want to learn a little bit more about those two titles? Yeah, you should be able to go to witchbeam.com.au if it works. Let me just test that right now. <laughs> bang, 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 bang. Uh, there we go. Yeah, that works totally fine. Our new website, well, we actually had this done up just recently, a couple of months ago. We finally got a professional to help us build a really neat website that has a great game page for everything including a neat little coming soon section for an unannounced video game that has a different name to foolproof and it's written there so whatever so uh, be sure to go check out the website then because there's some really cool stuff in there and again we've, we've spoken about it before really cool titles coming out of Witchbeam. so please go and check out their work not just not just your stuff but some of the other stuff that you're not 
so involved in it's it really firing on all cylinders at the moment yeah that's that's where you can find everything um you can find our games on steam xbox one ps4 for cactus as well so buy it and give me lots of money please yeah be sure to do that uh and if people were looking to reach out to you more specifically so or to to follow you where would they be best to go yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Sanatan Mishra, which is S-A-N-A-T-A-N-A-M-I-S-H-R-A. Yes, it's incredibly difficult, but I'm sure there'll be links, or you can probably just Google for that idiot related to Golden Axe. Um, well, yeah, if you type Golden Axe, you'll you'll they'll find you fairly quickly, I'd imagine. But you will, and that's where you can see my fairly banal video game design hot takes, as well as slightly less banal political hot takes and everything in between. And a whole host of other hot takes, and that's all fantastic. So be sure be sure uh, to go follow Sanatan on Twitter. Thank you very, very much for coming on the show and sharing your story today. Thanks for having me. Hopefully I didn't rant too much. No, 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 it was brilliant. Um, it was really fascinating to get some insight into some of those uh, early days at Sega, obviously to discuss the Golden Axe thing, but then to, to pick your brain about which beam and what's, what's uh, coming out of there and is still to come. You, as I mentioned a few times now, you guys are doing fantastic work there. I really... Everything... Uh, look, maybe, maybe I'm pumping the tyres up a little bit too much, but everything you touch, you and the team touch seems to be turning to gold at the moment. So long may that continue. Yeah, thank you very much. I hope so as well. But uh, as I said, thank you very much for coming on the show. All right. Cheers. And listeners, as always, thank you very much for listening. I'll see you next time. That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share it with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you would like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until the next episode, however, that's been Sonatan's Story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.